This week, we're doing something a little different, a feed exchange with another podcast we think you'll enjoy. If you love ancient times and all the great and not-so-great things that happened, Ancient Office Hours podcast is your big chance. Most importantly, if you ever wanted to pursue a career in classics, from academia to stand-up to video games, this will give you the insider's view. Episodes are released every two weeks. Today, I'm presenting their interview with Dr. Andrew Reinhardt, an archaeologist and director of publications at the American Numismatic Society. His career in classics is a great story. Dr. Reinhardt has had quite the interesting career, to say the least. He has also pioneered archaeogaming and discusses the challenges of being a historian who works with gaming companies. Take a listen to this fascinating episode of Ancient Office Hours. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of Ancient Office Hours. It was my great pleasure to sit down with Dr. Andrew Reinhardt, who is currently the Director of Publishing at the American Numismatic Society. He previously served as Director of Publications at the American School of Classical Studies at Athens and holds a background in archaeology, having excavated in both Greece and Italy. Furthermore, he is one of the leading scholars in the field of video game archaeology, which is most commonly referred to as archaeogaming. His book, Archaeogaming, An Introduction to Archaeology in and of Video Games, was published in 2018. We discussed his path from book collecting to publishing, how he productively channeled his academic rage, his path to becoming a pioneer in archaeogaming, and looked at some of the various ethical and funding challenges of working with gaming companies. Enjoy this thought-provoking conversation, and I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. And just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in classics? Yeah, my name is Andrew Reinhard. Uh, I'm currently the director of publications for the American Numismatic Society, and I've been working from home for a year and a day uh, as of today. Before that, I was the director of publications for the American School of Classical Studies at Athens with offices in Princeton. I did that for four years. And before that, I was the director of e-learning for Bolchese Carducci Publishers. So for those of you in the classics world who uh, focus on Greek and Latin pedagogy, I was responsible for things like the iPodius uh, MP3 store for digital audio or eClassics, which was a social network for Latin teachers. You know, that's back when I was regularly attending things like ACL and the, and the Institute and Camus and all of the fun stuff that I really don't do anymore, which is really sad because I miss it. As far as getting interested in classics, um, my dad actually threw a copy of Homer at me when I was a child. So I, but he, he's like, yeah, you're going to read all about the labyrinth. And I'm like, Oh, cool. And then I read it. I'm like, where's the labyrinth, <laughs> dad? Uh, but I still liked it, you know? And so, so uh, you know, I read the Odyssey, read the Iliad. I, you know, just kind of fell in love with the, with the stories and the characters and the mythology. I took a classical literature class in high school. Our high school was good enough to, or fortunate enough to have like AP track. So it was, as an English elective, I could take classical literature. And again, I was an idiot. Didn't know that classical literature meant... <laughs> Greek and Latin classics, right? And translation. And so I showed up and I'm like, aren't we going to read like To Kill a Mockingbird or something? And they're like, no. Uh, <laughs> but I stuck it out, you know, and it was really interesting. And so ultimately I got to college, uh, started taking Latin classes and found I was a terrible Latin student. I was awful at it. I, I, I don't know if I was worse than the class, but I was pretty far down. Um, but again, stuck with that, learned the language. And then ultimately, you know, following in uh, classical archaeology, you know, started to, to read ancient Greek, you know, especially as it related to like pottery inscriptions, you know, epigraphy and stuff like that. And so it's like, okay, this is cool. And I just kind of grew into it. And then becoming a publisher in classics uh, and in classical archaeology, you know, all of a sudden I started learning all this stuff by osmosis almost because I was reading articles and, and manuscripts for books uh, from all of these just wonderful people who are publishing on this stuff and that you can't help but but learn. So yeah, it's been kind of a lifetime approach often by mistake, but you know, those mistakes often reveal that uh, there's something really interesting there and you might as well just kind of hang out and, and, you know, follow that thread. If we can mix metaphors. 
Yeah, for sure. When, if we can just like roll the tape back and think back to when you were pretty young, did you always love mythology and, 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 and stories or like have a vested interest in them just sort of vaguely? Or were you much more into sort of some of the more contemporary uh, stories? I was actually drawn to stories uh, of ancient Greece and ancient Rome specifically. You know, I also liked, you know, things like folklore, like old folklore, you know, reading, you know, the, like the, the unabridged Grimm's fairy tales, you know, for example, and, and getting creeped out by those. And then I was young enough to be able to appreciate as a child, you know, the first Clash of the Titans film. And then... Uh, one of my favorite movies as a kid is uh, Jason and the Argonauts. And basically, you know, all of these Ray Harryhausen type things with the, with the you know, claymation or, or stop motion kind of animatronic you know, thing where it was just, just amazing to see like skeletons fighting and, uh, you know, real people and stuff like that. It just blew my mind. And I'm like, okay, this is really cool. So let's, let's keep digging in. Let's keep figuring this stuff out. My, uh, my grandmother gave me a set of books on mythology of the world, 12 volumes. <laughs> and so, so it's like, you know, every month or so I'd pull one, a new one off the shelf and would go through and read it. And they were illustrated and, and uh, you know, for kids, certainly. But at the same time, like, boy, this just opened up an entire world of, you know, myth and wonderful fiction and amazing stories that, you know, blew my mind. I'm like, this is really what I'm interested in. Yeah, I love hearing a little bit about what people were into as kids, just because I've found some some people have had really similar uh, experiences. So I think I've had a couple people who they all said, oh, I had the Dodelaires like big anthology book of myth and stories. And that's what I got, how I got into it. And I think as people had said that, I think I remember it in my school's library and I think I might have checked it out a couple times I have a very vague memory of Dodal because I think I remember like people talk about its illustrations like it they, they were there because it had great illustrations yeah. and I think I vaguely remember that but as silly as it sounds for me I had a lot of the Asterix and Obelix comics oh cool yeah yeah of course like they're not you know, super classical, but uh, it was growing up. I went to the French school of Chicago. And so, you know, they're, they're originally French. And so when they wanted us to read things, they were like, well, okay, fine. It's, you can read it because there's a lot of text, but it also is a comic. So we'll let them have some fun. So I grew up with those and, you know, they had Caesar in them in the Romans. And I just thought it was coolest thing. We would have Um, like asterisk in our, in our language classes. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like in German, we have the German version of asterisk or, or in Latin have the Latin version of asterisk. And, you know, it's just, you know, something like a treat, you know, you finish your work. And if you finish early, you can read asterisk in, in, in this language and like, okay, this is cool. Oh, that, yeah, no, that, that would have been really cool. Cause <laughs> it was definitely, it was between that and Tintin all in French. Oh, yeah. And to this yeah. day, I still have this great section on my bookshelf um, to my right. And you see like, I think I have almost the whole collection because they're they're numbered on the sides. So I have all yeah. the little numbered Tintins right next to all the little this numbered is, uh, asterisks. This is this is cool because you know as as we grow older, you know we can finally start to afford a little bit, you know, things that we wanted to collect as kids. The parents got you the wrong stuff, or you just didn't have the have the money for it. One of the things that I'm after right now, I, I collect editions of the Odyssey because of. I loved this story as a kid and now I like to get different editions and the one that I'm after, I have a reproduction copy, but I want, I'm looking for the original of the, the Odyssey illustrated by NCYF because you talk about, you know, just amazing art and cool images that are interspersed throughout the text and, and Wyeth's art, you know, for that edition is it, it's astonishingly good and I love it. And so one day, one day I'll find it. I don't want to like go onto Ava books or something. I want to go into a bookstore <laughs> and, and like discover it on my own. You know, that's the rule I've set for myself. So wherever I go, I go try to go to an old bookstore and, and see if they've got a copy. 
Yeah. Oh, that's the best feeling. Honestly, I, if I could, I would just kind of sit here and collect books. I mean, I kind of do anyway, just because I mean, basically I have, you know, two huge piles of books on my desk that keep growing that it's a problem because I really, I don't have room for them on my shelves, which is why they're on my desk. You know, my parents are like, you need to really stop acquiring more books. Just use the library. And I'm like, you don't understand that goes against, I keep trying to make them understand if you're a class assistant anyway if you study the ancient world all you want to do is collect books i mean this is our equivalent to collecting old scrolls right <laughs> oh for sure you know it's the life of the classicist and it, it's it's just in the dna that you know thou shalt collect you will accumulate paper and it, it's it's not a problem i mean i'm sitting in i have a home library and i'm just kind of sitting in the middle of it as you can see by, behind me on the screen and this is just the back wall and it goes that way and it goes that way and it's like art history archaeology classics and this is my happy place you know i come in here and sit <laughs> No, I have my my prized collection of classics books kind of on one level, and then I have uh-huh. my my Egyptology books on another one, and then I have my fiction books, but all that have to do with Greece and Egypt. Oh, so yeah. Percy Jackson's are back. So, you know, I have what I call the nice bookcase or the bookshelf uh, of all the things I've collected from my studies, uh, which are a lot because that is a huge bookcase. And yeah, I have, you know, well, I only have the one copy of the Odyssey. I I wish I was cool enough to collect multiple copies, but I just have the one. Uh, That's just me. Uh, (laughs) I wouldn't call it cool. It's just just a strange thing, especially, especially, you know, the kind of, of weird hero that he is. He's controversial and, and, complex and kind of a jerk uh and (laughs) but you know that's interesting about you know greek mythology and the greek gods and the greek heroes is that they're all messed up they're you know they're all of them have problems there's nothing perfect about any of these um things and i think that's really interesting about this kind of world mythology is that especially with the ancient greeks it's just they have issues (laughs) they all need to be (laughs) They all not, not even that they all just need like real mothers i don't know oh, that's yeah. maybe so freudian but um i'm just like <laughs> they like they have godly parents but you know gods famously are terrible at parenting so i'm just like well if you had like real good mommies and daddies then you just wouldn't be so messed up and yeah yeah you you're know. absolutely right <laughs> Um, but you know, as as a in your capacity capacity as a, a book publisher, you know, does that make you want to acquire and read more books than you have to for the job, or have, has that turned you into like, oh, no, this is so many books already, I need to just like cool it. I, I actually I keep my professional book life separate from my personal book life, if that makes any sense. Last year, be, because of the pandemic starting, you know, officially in March, you know, I started working from home, and I had the opportunity to really like wrap up a bunch of projects. And so I think last year we published eight books, which was some kind of record for the American Numismatic Society. And these monographs, you know, they're typically the low end is like three hundred pages, and you know the upper end is about seven hundred. And these are highly technical publications. They've got, you know, catalogs of coins, they've got, you know, hundreds or thousands of images and plates and everything. And so, you know, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I'm like, I guess I got to do some work. And I'm not a numismatist, you know, I'm an archaeologist. I was a pottery guy. And for those of you, you know, of your listeners who might know, you know, what else I do, you know, I do digital archaeology and video game archaeology. And so this is a far cry from all of that. So I'm learning a lot about coins whenever I read, but I, I don't buy these for myself because I, you know, I don't have that kind of, of interest on a personal level that I do in a professional level. So, you know, I've got a, I guess my recent acquisitions, some people might be familiar with Simon Stolenhoek. He's a Swedish illustrator. If you guys watch Tales from the Loop on Amazon Prime, that was based on his books. And so he does science fiction art books where it's like an imagined past populated with artifacts from the future. And, and it's set in like rural Sweden. So you're looking at like these robots resting in a field in Sweden and it's like, oh, that's awesome. Uh, you know, so, you know, collecting kind of sci-fi books like that, art books like that, photography. And then as far as fiction goes, you know, it's all, it, it's uh, been, you know, William Gibson, uh, Neil Stevenson, Cormac McCarthy, you know, just this, this kind of, it's like dude fiction, you know, dude science fiction, you know, for better or worse. And, you know, that's, that's, I've been getting through their life's work, you know, before, 
you know, going and, and finding something new, mostly science fiction and fantasy on, on the personal side. And then the, the work stays at work. Yeah. And so just for the young classicists out there who maybe don't want to go into academia or don't know how or it's they need something before they can get to where they want to. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into publishing and how did were you able to find not only a publishing job, but something that was directly related to classics and then something that's now classics adjacent? Sure. Yeah, the career trajectory has been real interesting. And a lot of this has been by necessity, but also driven through love to, you know, I finished my master's degree at the University of Missouri at the Columbia campus uh, in 1996, you know, doing Ooh. Greek pottery. <laughs> Sorry, um, that's when my proud uh, Mizzou roots come back. And Yeah, no, um, I, I, I enjoyed my time at Mizzou. You know, I had classes with Kathleen Slane. Uh, my advisor was William Beers. I had a seminar the only seminar in which I ever cried was at Marcus Routman's uh, seminar on late antiquity. <laughs> really? Oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. No, Cause I've taken like four classes with Dr. Routman and I love him. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever done worse than yeah. an A minus in his no, class. Um, this, it was my first kind of graduate level seminar and there were two students in the class and we would alternate. It was basically art in the age of Justinian. And so my first, my first presentation, which was supposed to last like two hours, I was woefully unprepared and I was told this and I was embarrassed. It basically said, you'll come back next week and you'll do it again. I just got out of that room and just started bawling. It's like, man, yeah, he was super thorough, you know, very you know, tough, but fair, you know, super encyclopedic and all of that stuff. But, you know, that was a tough department, you know, after my master's. And again, this is another true confession is that, um, you know, beers when after I defended my thesis, you know, the following day, he's like, come and see me in my office. I'm like, all right. He's like, I'm not going to recommend you for a PhD program. Okay. So what the hell do I do now? So I worked in retail for a year, the museum company, because, you know, I had worked at the Nelson Atkins as a summer intern. I worked at the University of Missouri's Museum of Art and Archaeology for the two years that I was there as my work study. I like museums. I like archaeology still. And so, you know, I did that. I did a, what I called a working holiday by going to the site of Isthmia at Greece. I did a season there with Ohio State, uh, which was awesome. After that uh, work, I got a job at a museum software company called Willoughby Associates, and I worked there for 10 years doing the help desk, doing client services, training museum professionals, how to use relational databases. So again, you know, archaeology adjacent, museum adjacent, learning technology, you know, learning how to use Oracle, how to use Access, PHP, Apache, web services. So all of this technical stuff at the same time, you know, working with people who are working with actual artifacts. And then after 10 years, I got the job at Bolchese Carducci doing their digital stuff. Again, maintaining classics roots. And this is because I was in the Chicago area. You know, Willoughby was, was in Evanston. Belchese Carducci was in uh, like Mundelein. So it was just an extra 10 minute drive for me or whatever. So I, you know, I just switched over after a couple of weeks vacation and did that for a few years. And I learned the publishing business from Lou Belchese and from Marie Belchese. I was able to build a network of classicists and fellow archaeologists over that time, you know, doing social media, you know, Facebook, which I don't do anymore because it's evil. We Twitter a lot. And so I set up a Twitter account, I think in 2007, 2008, you know, just started building the network and talking to people and, and maintaining these professional and personal relationships through that. Uh, the rogue classicist and the classics L listserv was a godsend. And so it's fun to participate there back in the early days of that. And I still haven't met David Meadows, but one of these days, you know, I like, you know, interact once a week, but we've never met. So there's that. And then following, following the Bolchese, you know, I saw that the American school was advertising for director publications. And I'm like, maybe now is the time for me to make the jump back into archaeology and to lead a publishing house. I was not their first choice. I was not their second choice. I was the third choice. But the other two, there are issues. One person got another job somewhere else and used it as leverage you know, in the interview process. Another person did not pass the vetting process. Then it was me. So I'm like, it's like they threw me a bone. So I got really, really, really lucky. Passed my probationary period and then stayed there for four years and then got the job at the American Numismatic Society, you know, because I continued to build the network of archaeologists, classicists, uh, and other people working in digital humanities at that point. So I guess the long story short is, you know, a lot of these are, you know, just opportunities that I wanted to explore, uh, things that happened by accident, things that I heard about through my network. This all came about because my advisor didn't think I was good enough for a PhD. 
well, the joke's on him. <laughs> yeah, I got my PhD last year from the University of York um, in archaeology, specifically archaeology of digital things. And so it's a, I joke that it took me 20 years to find a topic. And I guess it kind of did, you know, because I couldn't have done the PhD, you know, now like I did back then. So anyway, I kind of did things backwards. I had a career first, went back into academia. You know, here I am. Yeah, I think it's really unique, though, for sure. And it probably never feels good, right? When you have an advisor come to you and just say, no, you can't. Oh, I was miserable. I was too utterly depressed and destroyed. And thinking back on it, he was probably right. My thinking wasn't mature enough. You know, I wasn't a very good writer. Yeah, I wasn't ready for the next step. And so he actually did me a favor. It took me some years to find out that that's what he did, but he did. And uh, by doing so, he set me on this other path outside of academia. It's been really rewarding. Yeah. And for all the young people out there who are kind of struggling with maybe this in-between area of, am I good enough to, to go on in my studies? You know, what advice would you give to someone who's, who's sitting there kind of dealing with that current fear of, oh, no, I think I'm not going to get in anywhere or I think yeah. I'm just going to be told I can't make it? I think, I think a certain level of self-doubt and self-questioning is good. I think it's normal. I think that if you don't have that, maybe there's something wrong. <laughs> you can't be all confidence. You have to. And again, I was, you know, people who knew me, you know, 20 years ago, I was a fool. And I hope I've changed since then. Yeah, nothing teaches like experience and time. If there's a question, I, you know, send that application. Try that interview. Again, this is not, you know, me being first in anything. This is me like being second, third, or, or out of the running. And then finally, you know, finding some way to get in because I really wanted to do this. And if you really want to do something, you know, then leverage your network, build your network, be a good person, help out. You know, this is what I've been trying to do now as well is anything I can do to help. Now that I'm in an established position, it's like, if I can help somebody, I will, you know, whether it's mentoring or editing or putting people in touch with other people, there's something to be said about being a good citizen, being a good colleague. And once you've gotten to a position to help others get to this similar position. And, you know, as we're talking like right now, um, the American School of Classical Studies is hiring an assistant editor for the journal Hesperia. And this is great for an early career researcher. You don't need a master's. Really great. This is a rare opportunity. So you know, people should apply. If they have any questions about working at the American School, they can talk to me or write to me or whatever. I'll let them know what that's about. Um, it's a good team there. So anyway, you know, any advice is, you know, if just try it, you know, if, if you're doubtful or hesitant, just try it, you know, do the interview, do the application. If anything, it's practice. Every interview you do, every application you send, you know, you should get a little bit better at it. it. Hopefully you'll get feedback from the institution who's receiving this stuff. I know that's rare these days, which I think is bad manners, you know, and if you don't hear back, you know, write to them. It's like, Hey, what, why did you choose X over Y? Why did, why, how could I have done better? And then, you know, try again, but uh, you know, don't give up, you know, if, if there's a roadblock that gets put in front of you, that's also okay. There are plenty of other things to do, you know, and I guess if you have that goal to set out way far ahead of you, you know, you can kind of take this roundabout way and everybody's you know, journey is going to be different. Um, but, you know, you can you know, keep your eyes on the prize and hopefully you'll be able to work your way back to it while at the same time you know, trying to enjoy what you have at the present, coming from a position of, of, of privilege or, <laughs> or what, but I, I felt like I had to work for all of this stuff. Yeah. I, isn't it better though, that you got to where you are because you had to work so hard? Yeah. Uh, I was just like, had a chip on my shoulder. Uh, <laughs> so it's just like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And uh, having my advisor like you know, not, not progress me, you know, that, that fuel to kind of inner rage, like I'll show that guy the, you know, that's good. If you can channel the rage in a productive way, great. Do that. Now I have to ask, have you ever thought about finding that old advisor and being like, hi, here I am. Well, I, ha I, be? I haven't, uh, I haven't visited uh, him in the cemetery because he died like two years ago of Alzheimer's. Oh, no. But uh, I did dedicate my PhD thesis to him. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I, I, that's nice. I like that. That's yeah, it's, um, it's, it's throwing a little shade on the shade. That's a that's a great story. You know, oh yeah, I was told I couldn't do it by this one dude, and then when I finally did the thing, I dedicated yeah. it to him. It's Absolutely. all because of him. Yeah. It kind of was. Oh, that's great. That reminds me of um, my best friend from college. Uh, she wanted people 
desperately to take her seriously and she figured that people just wouldn't do so she's always been very economically and politically minded and so she just she thought no one would take her seriously unless she was she stubbornly decided to get her undergrad in economics and I was like come on you're gonna put yourself through all that just so what you think people will will take you seriously based on your major and she was like yeah that's exactly what I'm gonna do (laughs) so she ended up doing the thing and so when she graduated she triumphantly takes her degree and says I have the BA in economics so you will take me seriously because I look smart But anyway, you have this focus on digital humanities, which is very Mm -hmm. different from, you know, physically, you know, looking at a bunch of cool numismatic books. Uh, You know, I personally don't know anything about the ins and outs of numismatics, but I will say that my final undergrad class uh, back in 2018 was with Dr. Marcus Routman, the -hmm. man, the myth, the legend. And he gave me the choice to pick whatever I wanted to for my final project. And I said, okay, I don't want to write about, I think it was a class on Byzantine, it was just Byzantine art and archaeology, I believe. And I said, well, I don't want to write about one of these many churches. That's just boring. Yeah, You know, they're incredibly beautiful, but I was like, I don't want to write on this. So I chose to write a whole paper. It's like 20 pages, it's like 20 pages long on the changing iconography byzantine coins Mm -hmm. during the iconoclasms i don't know why i chose that it was really random but i just remember thinking i like coins i like numismatics i just think it's interesting no one seems to do that here i'm going to do it and then you know proceeded to write a 20 page paper on it but digital humanities is a completely like different separate thing But, you know, I see people cataloging and digitizing things more and more like images of coins because I wouldn't have been able to write that paper unless I had access to the Internet. And then I could go on it and find all these digitized pictures where I could zoom in. So how much digital work do you get to sort of see going on in your current uh, position? Numismatics, as we know it, today could not exist without its digital components. They're hand in glove. And one of the greatest things about the American Numismatic Society, and I can say this not just as a, as a staff member, but also as, as a user, is the fact that uh, it has its Mantis search engine you know, tied into numismatics.org, where you can search nearly a million numismatic artifacts in the collection. You know, About two thirds of those have high quality, high definition images assigned to them. You know, this is all cultures, all points in time, all geographic regions. And then we've got partnerships that are funded by, you know, the NEH or the Mellon Foundation and other places that have allowed us to collaborate internationally with like the National Library of France or the Coin Cabinet in Berlin and other museums around the world that have similar collections where we can create this ecosystem of linked open data so that people searching on a particular emperor's bust, for example, they'll see coins from the ANS's collection, but also coins from these other collections too brought together. And, you know, we have a number of diff- different initiatives, you know, like Pella, you know, we've, we've got something for the Antigonids, you know, something for the Ptolemaic coins, something for the Roman Republic, something from the Roman Empire, you know, all of these, these different areas that allow researchers to, to go in and find what they need right away. I mean, in good old days, and, you know, I can say this as a grad student who was going to school in the mid 90s, you know, I had email that was it. You know, the internet hadn't shown up at Missouri's campus until I graduated. So we were still using card catalogs. We still had to visit museums and visit coin collections in person, book time, take a look at these things by hand, which I still recommend, you know, but if, if you don't have that luxury, if you're not able to afford it, you know, having these things available as, as high def images online is a, is a lifesaver. Absolutely. You know, these digital humanities tools and methods have really advanced numismatic studies you know, light years beyond what they were. It's just new ways of seeing and access to all of this information, including, you know, open access and open source monographs, journal articles and the like too. So, you know, we try to make all of this as open and as free and user-friendly as we possibly can. Personally, you know, that's what I think scholarship should be doing. You know, get everything out of the silo, allow scholars to communicate freely and, you know, use you know their data freely, you know, in this kind of 
exchange. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, that's only half of the digital work that you're interested in. In terms of the other component that maybe some other people would would know you best for the archeo gaming half. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how what prompted you to write your book archeo gaming? Because I think, you know, some people are familiar with the term, but they don't yeah. know there's a book one and then two, you know, they're just like, well what, what do you how do you write a book on this? <laughs> um yeah, that that's the question. Now, you know, there there are you know, a few other people who had been doing this, you know, before I started working formally in video game archaeology. Ethan Wattrell uh, at Michigan State, for example, I think wrote the first peer-reviewed published article about using classics-oriented video games or archaeology-themed video games in the classroom as a pedagogical tool. And this is like, you know, 15, 20 years ago at this point. You know, so people have been looking at this stuff. Um, Colleen Morgan, who's teaching at the University of York now, uh, had published, uh, you know, information about working in Second Life and has done other things with games as well. So you have these kind of original gangsters, you know, out there who are in the wilderness publishing, you know, things here and there. You know, I came to it uh, because I really liked the idea of lore and ruins in games. You know, why does this game have all this lore? Why are these ruins here? This is archaeology. And then kind of turn the corner to think that video games or interactive digital entertainment are themselves archaeological artifacts, sites, and landscapes. And I didn't really see a lot of people writing about that. And so I'm like, you know, we should probably codify this. And so I came up with the term archaeogaming, for better or worse. You know what else to do, what else to call it. So I just called it that. And it was heavily weighted towards digital games, but... I would like to include analog games in that as well. You know, gaming through history, gaming through time from all these other cultures too. Sure, why not? You know, let's let's open the tent, you know? And so I created the Twitter handle, Archeo Gaming, and then the website, you know, you did archeogaming.com, which is a blog that is now run by Caitlin Kingsland, at, uh, you know, who's, who's uh, a PhD candidate in Florida. And I just started writing the book. At the same time, I was writing my PhD thesis. So I'm kind of writing two books at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it was just important to say, okay, video game archaeology is not just about Tomb Raider. It's not just about how archaeologists are perceived in games or by game designers or how archaeology is portrayed in games for players, you know, with like the looting mechanics and the ethics and stuff like that. That's all part of it. But I wanted to make sure that the other part was handled as well. You're basically treating games is like examples of, of modern digital material culture, almost like a globalized cultural heritage. And how do we preserve that? How do we communicate that? How do we do an archaeology of digital things? How do we conduct an archaeological survey and excavation inside a digital environment, a virtual world or a video game? Now, I don't know. So let's, let's figure it out. I did the PhD because I wanted to see if these ideas were good enough. So I did it more for the research than I did for any kind of personal gain, you know, is like, all right, well, I think this is a thing. Let's put it to the test. So, you know, enrolled in the PhD program, my advisor was Sarah Perry. You know, one of my examiners was Jeremy Huggett, you know, who is Mr. Digital Archaeology. I tried to do the PhD as openly as possible, where any research I was doing, I put online. Any abstracts, any papers I was working on, I put openly online, working drafts, final drafts, whatever, to have it out there because it's important for the community to kind of participate in this peer review that's open. You know, if my idea sucks, I want you to tell me before it's too late so I can fix it. I can, I can read. If I'm not reading the right things, tell me what to read. If I've said something that's bad, you know, help me make it better. And I'll do the same for you. So it's very much a give and take, you know, again, which is what I think scholarship should be. It's a, it's communication. It's helping each other. And with the RQ gaming community, we found each other, uh, which is interesting because there are a lot of people, you know, same time I was doing this. They're like, hey, I thought I was the only one doing this. And then there's somebody else, you know, in like Sweden is like, hey, I thought I was the only one doing this. Or somebody in, in Brazil, hey, I thought I was the only one doing this. And so we, we make a community and now we have a community practice and it's, it's diverse. It's multinational, multilingual. Finally, we have people in Japan doing this. Uh, there are people in India doing this. There are people in South America doing this, as well as North America, UK and Europe. And it's just been awesome to watch this kind of grow. And there are people I don't even know. Now, in the beginning, it was a small community and everybody kind of knew each other, went to the same conferences, published in the same places. And now it's just big. And this is like, oh, thank goodness. So it's healthy. It's in good hands. People are doing a lot of interesting work and it's just awesome to, to support them and to, to see what they're working on.
Yeah. And how do you combat a lot of these attitudes that, you know, maybe parents and and, th- and people would have, which is, yeah, it's great and all, but it's still a video game. And I don't, you know, a lot of these, some of these games can be violent, like the Assassin's Creed games. Obviously, they have oh, certain yeah. solutions like the Discovery yeah. Tours that they're working on. I think the overall thing is, you know, my parents, for example... They didn't let me have any gaming consoles growing up because they were like, it's going to mush your brain. Nothing yeah. good will come of you playing video games. You cannot have them. You're going to read books and yeah. go outside. These are these are classic, classic examples. You know, my parents said the same thing. My mom more than my dad, because my dad used to take me to the video arcade. You know, he'd give me like a fistful of quarters and then I would, I sucked at video games as a child. And so, you know, I'd blow through them in like 10 minutes and he's like, you're done already. <laughs> but uh, you know my mom was was very much of you know it's like go outside read a book and I did I went outside I read books sure my dad got my brother and I an Intellivision for, for Christmas one year in the 80s uh, we wanted an Atari 2600 because that's what our friends had but no we got the, the Intellivision great thanks um, but we played it and it was fun with those games you know you could invest a half hour an hour or something in a particular game and then you're kind of done you, you've beat it or you got as far as you could and then you have to do something else as opposed to like Assassin's Creed where you've played for a hundred hours and you might almost be done with the main quests you know in the storyline and stuff so you know things are different now but games are just part of the vernacular at this point we have to engage with them as examples of modern media to me, they're examples of built heritage and built cultural heritage and intangible heritage too. You have all of these communities you know, that have grown up around these games. You've got these shared experiences. People are treating these as like a, a second home you know, in a way, especially for these building games. You, know, you play Minecraft and you're building things for yourself and for your friends. Playing other games, you know, like uh, played a lot of Fallout 76 over the pandemic. And so there you can build a camp and you can just make these elaborate constructions that follow you around you know, whenever you log in. And it's time. It's energy. I can spend actual real money on things, you know, to put into the game. And so you have these economies. Uh, you've got cultures of gamers that are that are tied to a particular video game or franchise or something. And this is all archaeology. You know, this is modern archaeology. It's contemporary archaeology. But we're kind of asking the similar questions and you know, seeing how people behave in games and and what they build and make for themselves, how they work as a community all of this stuff. And it also gets into preservation issues too. You know, how do you document or save, you know, something that is digital, that is ephemeral. And we have to deal with primary sources, which are the games and secondary sources, sources, which are things like wikis and reddits. It's just a new way of, of doing things on a very accelerated timeline. You know, it's not just games too, it's any software, you know, we can treat it in this way people's homes away from their homes this is where we spend most of our lives yeah you know in front of a screen and if that's the case then we're kind of living there and we might as well treat these as archaeological spaces i would say a lot of these aren't just reserved to archaeologists and classicists right i mean there's so many yes historical games which are really nice because they bring the ancient world to life but something as simple as my one of my first video games quote-unquote was I got the PC version and then all the expansion packs for the Sims games. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was a lot of there was a lot of Sims 2 in my life when I was younger. And I was thinking about that the other day because I think someone, a friend of mine was like, oh, I miss playing Sims. And I was like, oh, right. That was like a thing. It was so popular. <laughs> that could be like an anthropological thing, right? I mean, I yeah, sometimes I ponder all the all the players who, if you ask them, oh, were you the player who tried to do everything right? Did you use cheat codes to just yeah. get all the money? Or my favorite are the people who say, well, I was kind of a terrible person and did things that I would never do in real life, like lock everyone yeah. in the pool or a room, take the doors <laughs> away and just let them all die in oh, there. Oh, for sure. You know, um, we learned so much about human behavior, especially when we were kind of operating in God mode when we could do stuff like that. You know, from an archaeologist's perspective, you know, if, if I'm in a game, I'm looting everything. <laughs> I am breaking all the jars, I'm taking all the artifacts, and I'm selling them. I don't do that as a normal archaeologist or regular natural world archaeologist, but in a game, I'm just terrible. And I know that makes some people really mad. Yeah, if I'm, it's in the game, it's part of the mechanic, I'm doing it. 
it says so the game's morality says i can do this you know but, and i keep that separate it's not like you know you know if i play you know like red dead redemption 2 you know shooting up the bad guys i'm not doing that in the real world <laughs> you know but i'm doing it in the game we have those arguments you can you know do that all day but you know that that doesn't necessarily translate from one to the next. And there are other people who are doing research on, you know, does this actually happen? How do games that portray a culture or, or cultural or heritage, you know, what do the players do after they play the game? How does it affect their interpretation of, you know, modern culture, you know, whether it's Native American culture or, you know, ancient Japan or whatever, you know, how do we, how do we interact, you know, with, with those sites and those collections and museums and, and descendants, you know, after we've we've played the game and and have a certain idea given to us by a, a designer or a developer, we're in a perfect world, I guess. How do you see this field progressing? And you know, how do we break that last barrier of how do we convince teachers to use it in schools? You know, that's something that yeah. I spend quite a lot of my time on. You know, as someone who is between undergrad and grad school, because I won't get there until next year hook fingers crossed you know so right now i'm kind of relegated in this weird like independent scholar position just by virtue of i'm in between things so you know i'm, I'm like give yeah. me a, give me a second guys I'll, I'll be there soon but yeah you, you know in the meantime i've been working on developing our own archeo gaming uh, modules for classroom use but i think that the biggest resistance i find is you know teachers just kind of saying well you know how how is this really going to do anything you know well, i don't really want to do that yeah, understood. I mean, it's going to be personal preference for one. And I found this when I was doing e-learning for Bolchese Carducci as well. And the fact that, you know, not all students are going to have access to hardware, whether it's a, a fast computer or a console or a phone even, not all students are going to be able to afford a game, you know, if they want to do homework or projects at home for this kind of stuff, requires an instructor to be literate in games and gaming what you know how these consoles work what these games are how do you play them so you know puts a lot on the teacher and then there's privilege involved as well you know again with affordability the access to technology and all of this too so it's really hard you know especially if you're if you're working with secondary education uh, higher education things might get a little easier moving forward from a pedagogical standpoint I think instructors need to guarantee that their students will have access. The teachers need to themselves be comfortable with it. Or if they assign projects, one of the projects could be, you know, a student chooses a game and writes a paper on it or, or writes their own game using Twine or Ink or, or one of these other open source platforms. You know, it's just part of a thing, you know, for an end of semester project. And other students could write a paper. Other students could do other some kind of media or whatever. And then, you know, the instructor can, you know, have their rubric and, you know, measure the output against whatever that rubric is. You know, we can certainly make options available, make things accessible, make things easy to use, you know, from a student's perspective as well as from an instructor's perspective and kind of move forward with that. You know, as with anything digital, and we've seen this in the pandemic too, where internet connection is spotty in certain parts of the country or certain parts of the state, fast for other, you know, parts of the population. There's not equity, not equality technologically. This is a problem for doing remote school, lag or latency issues, you know, and other kinds of things, you know, that are kind of compounding on this. I, I mean, I like the idea. I like, I like to give the ideas as an option you know, for students to choose if, if, if they have that kind of access, you know, okay, fine. But any kind of requirement, I think there are problems. And that's not just a games, but just a technology generally. Yeah, it seems to me that a lot of these obviously are connected to funding, which is something that the humanities are always struggling with anyway. Yeah. So for something like this to work, because if we're if the end goal is to make studying the humanities and ancient world adjacent fields, if we're trying to make them engaging and fun and interactive, the way that I believe children respond to better than just, you know, read this in some dry book. This issue of not everyone is going to have the technology is is definitely a big a big issue, but in terms of funding, you know, is do you see it as well if we can make a good argument should this be something that we take to that governmental level or is this where you see kind of a public private partnership where if we get private investors, donors who say, hey, I believe in this, I will give you as a school or you as a business providing this stuff, I will give somebody money so that way you can give the school and make sure at least every classroom has a console. So even if you can't 
accommodate like asynchronous learning at first, you can say, well, yeah. you can do synchronous learning all together because we'll make sure that you have this. But obviously that requires people with the money to then give other people money. Yeah. You know, you get into funding and that's got all kinds of problems just because, you know, depending on where the funding comes from, there's going to be restrictions and requirements and, you know, advertising is like bringing Coke and Pepsi into school. You know, all of a sudden are you Coke school or Pepsi school? You should not have either. In my opinion, you should have the freaking water fountain, but that's just me being an old man, get off my lawn. You know, it's the same kind of issues, you know, with, with this moving forward, you know, I think any school benefit for technologies, you know, uh, when I was in high school and junior high school, you know, the school got funding or donations from Apple. We got a bunch of Apple twos, you know, that came in or we had, you know, uh, Commodore 64 or TRS 80 computers that were put into a lab, you know, for students to use, uh, which was great being able to have those hardware and to build those labs because it's important to build digital literacy in the students. You know, students need to know how to use computers. They should know how to program. They should know how things work. You know, I can talk to my kid. She doesn't know how stuff works. She just knows that it does. And I'm like, no, no, no. And so I look at my upbringing and did like, you know, what's inside a computer. We understood, you know, how to make the software do stuff, how to make music, how to do digital art. And why is this even possible? You know, almost from like a physics perspective. <laughs> It's, it sounds like me going on this like kids today rant, but, but I think that's all part of digital literacy too, because if, if something happens, you know, we need to be self-sufficient in how to repair this stuff, how to use this stuff. And yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, certainly there's, I, I do think it, it comes down to a literacy issue, making sure the students understand how thing, you know, how to use the stuff, making sure the teachers get the training that they need in order to you understand these platforms, understand what's being used on the platforms, and also to be in touch with what their students are into and how you can bring that in you know, to the class without excluding other students who don't have that literacy. That's always you know, kind of a typical problem. I can make a pop culture reference and half the class will get it, half the class won't. That can be an opportunity to have a dialogue. Sure, it's hard. There's, there's not an easy answer for this. For sure not. I mean, this is a huge issue, but I mean, yes, obviously, especially with government funding, there's going to be a lot of restrictions, a lot of, you know, walk us through the process. Well, you know, tell us where our money's going, because a lot of this is like taxpayer funded stuff. And with private donors, I would imagine definitely much of the same. Where is our money going if I'm going to make this donation? So is this somewhere where the entertainment industry and academia have been so terrible about talking to each other and working together? And, you know, I believe that that's definitely got to change. So yeah. is there any good that can come of, you know, maybe you get a big company like Ubisoft? It's a billion sure. dollar company. It has a ton of money. And guess what? Yeah. Their entire like existence relies on they need people to buy and play games. So, you know, if can you go to a company and be like, hi, can you help us out? Because we will yeah, get people is... to play your games if you give us this. Yeah. Yeah. There's ethics there's ethics involved there that are complicated. This is one of the reasons why I think Ubisoft went ahead and did the discovery tours, you know, which is the, the nonviolent walking around ancient Greece or ancient Egypt things that they did in consulting. They did in consultation with historians. They did in consultation with archeologists, uh, a couple of friends in Greece who actually wrote different sections of the discovery tour, you know, for Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Uh, and then, you know, I'd been in conversation with the, the full-time archeologist they employed during the creation of that game. You know, so, you know, they're trying to put their best foot forward in order to, to make these experiences. And you can get, I think you can get the discovery tour outside of the game. So you don't have to buy the game. You could just get the tour if that's what you want to do. And then you can demo that in class or, or, or whatever on a screen. But I, would, I haven't seen this yet, but I would love for games companies that create historical games to set up these kind of grants or micro grants. You know, schools or districts or states or individual teachers can apply saying, you know, I want to do X, you know, can I have money for X or can I have access to the software for Y? Go, go forward like that. Uh, on the other side, um, you know, there, there are a few archaeologists and historians who have connections, you know, with game gaming companies that deal with historical games like Rockstar, for example. So, you know, they make Red Dead Redemption, which is set in the fictionalized American West, but they try to lend a lot of authenticity to, to clothing design, weapon design, environment design, and all of that stuff. And so, you know, you can work 
with them as an academic, but at the same time, you know, realize that this is a for-profit company. That's the reason to be, as you mentioned, is to sell games to get people to play the games. And so they're going to have to draw the line at some point between authenticity, historicity, entertainment, because ultimately that's what it is. You know, you have to have that collaboration, you know, maybe to bring in some good ethics, you know, and, you know, maybe not loot everything, maybe be sensitive to the cultures that are represented in your game, Okay. And the kind of guide, you know, the companies like that, but they're private. So they don't have to listen to you. A lot of them don't want to listen to you. They just want to make their game. Okay. That's fair. If they're a company, they're private, but hopefully they'll listen. Yeah. I I mean, I think it brings up more, way more questions than it does answers, unfortunately, but I mean, most good things do. So this is unfortunately the, where you've given me an, an opening to sort of not only plug my company, but also ask a little bit about our future role, because this is something we spend probably every day of our lives thinking about, which is the Osmandius Project as a small company with our Archeo Gaming program. That's one of the things kind of we are seeking to, to feel out and see if there is a space in the world for something like us, which is like to be in it. I mean, eventually we'd like to be that intermediary between schools and academics. They're busy already so they don't really have time to be going and talking to big gaming companies but you know that's where something like we come in which is where we would create the connection we are a business so you know then that's two businesses talking to each other one and then is there a space for something like us where okay if we talk to the the companies and we work out something we would go to schools and say hey we can customize the stuff for you we have we got access to it. You tell us what you want. And our role would be to take what they give us. And then we would do something with that to make it school okay. So then that way we can sell it back to schools and be like, hey, schools, we have this thing. It's not coming straight from the gaming company. We've made sure to make ethical arguments and the like. Now we have a nice finished product that is completely school okay. Yeah. Yeah. I do think there's a space for that middle part. You know, the big mystery is how to get anybody to answer the phone or to return an email at a AAA game studio. If you can figure that out, you're 90% there. You know, know, your average instructor isn't going to know how to do that or where to begin. So having somebody to go to and saying, hey, can you help me with X, you know, I think is a really good idea. You know, and then there are other game, games and gaming companies where you could make contact pretty easily. So, for example, you know, the company Digit Games, if you're familiar with them, you know, they do the, uh, I came in touch with them uh, back in Bolchese days, you know, because of their, they had like the Pompeii excavation game where you could learn about archaeology and history and everything. And now they do, you know, things set in a historical and cultural setting for things like math uh, and stuff, which is cool. You know, it gives you a different perspective. And so, you know, you're, you're working you're working there and because they're a smaller company and they deal with education specifically, you know, it's much easier to get a response and to, to put people in touch and, and to, you know, maybe even develop something together. I don't know. So, yeah, I do think there's, there's, there's a home there. And, you know, if you're working towards, uh, you know, ethical solutions, you know, to pedagogical problems, specifically focused in the ancient world, I think that's a great way to go. Certainly use digital tools and materials, you know, to supplement, you know, whatever, you know, a particular teacher has on the syllabus. Um, So yeah, I do see a way forward. I do think there's a future in it. Absolutely. But, you know, you always have to keep in mind the lowest common denominator for, you know, internet speed, access to technology, hardware, software, just to make sure that nobody, you know, gets left in the dust or feels like they're being left out. They want to participate because it's fun. Yeah, just kind of with that, would you consider video games like the making of them, whether that's you have a hand in uh, certainly the technical parts, but even sort of like writing and and, uh, historical consulting, do you consider video game creation as a whole? Can that be considered like a STEM field? I think it's a STEAM field. Can't leave out the A. You always have to have arts and humanities together hand in glove with science, technology, engineering, and math. You cannot, in my opinion, you cannot have one without the other uh, because they inform each other. You know, for me as a student, you know, I was taking, you know, science classes, you know, math classes, programming classes, along with art, you know, taking AP English, you know, uh, in that classical literature course and stuff, because I was interested in everything and, and it's all of a piece. I mean, these are all human endeavors. STEM and and the arts and digital humanities and regular humanities and all of this stuff, you know, it's they have to be taken together because they're all human pursuits. Programming and with coding, with game creation, that is a great educational tool because 
you're allowing people to create stories. You're allowing people to attempt to do historical recreations. You know, if they're doing 3D modeling, you know, things like that. You know, a lot of the modern games, they use photogrammetry. So, you know, they scan objects and bring them into the game and into, you know, Unity or, or Unreal Engine or something like that in order to, to create these worlds. Well, that's a great way to understand something about it. If you are making something, then you are learning the history. You are getting into the nuts and bolts. And, you know, I mentioned Colleen Morgan earlier, you know, her work with Chattahoyuk, for example, and building houses using digital tools really allowed her to address archaeological questions. Sean Graham at Carleton University, um, he's really big on this too, especially with pedagogy. And he finds that his students really learn the best when they make things you know, game creation, whether it's through Twine or other narrative software. And there are a lot of open source platforms now that allow you to do visuals. You know, great, you know, learn that, use that. You'll, you'll come to some interesting conclusions. And so since we, we've, we've established that these are very interconnected because I fully believe that science and the humanities go hand in hand for anything. Why is it, do we think that we separate them to the point where a lot of people in the humanities field, you know, they, they don't want to apply for STEM funding. And, you know, is it also a problem of STEM funders and, and people in STEM just don't think of them as interconnected, which is why they don't even open up the avenues for, for yeah. humanities people to apply? I, I don't know. I've sat in on at least one grant review board for the NEH, uh, for their Office of Digital Humanities. And there it was cool because, you know, people... We're integrating technology with humanities. I don't see how they're separate. I can't speak to you know these other elements or other granting agencies or private funders or anything. I, I just I just don't know what their perception is. So I'm a little hesitant to project. The fact that STEM exists as its own thing outside of the humanities and the day-to-day -day stuff that you read or that you listen to, I think speaks to a fundamental problem in how the humanities are perceived. You know, it's it's like the left brain and the right brain are completely separate, which is not the case. I mean, we use both hemispheres together all the time. So, you know, I don't, I don't see why science, technology, engineering, and math and humanities can't inform each other. You know, I don't see how we can read, you know, Lucretius and not go into the science side of things to, to figure out, you know, is he talking about correct, not correct? You know, where is this happening? Rather than just treating it as a primary Latin text, you know. So from this author. So, and then on the, on the flip side, having that humanities experience, you know, being grounded in art and art history and archeology span and literature and music, all of that can inform, you know, what people are doing on the science, technology, engineering, and maths side of the spectrum. You know, I think that we'll find that things are a lot more interesting and a lot more ethical also <laughs> when the humanities get involved with that side of the equation. Yeah, I think you raise a lot of really great points that could a dissertation in and of itself. A lot of the things we've been talking about, I mean, they're Several, just, yeah. yeah, they're so interesting. So, you know, I think the, the answer right now for all of us is to keep thinking about better solutions. You know, these are not easy things that I don't think are going to be resolved anytime soon particularly. Yeah. At the end of each podcast, I ask every guest to read the Shelley version of Ozymandias. And after you read it, if you could just give us your quick thoughts on what is this poem evoke for you? Why is it so powerful? Um, yeah. any, anything, really. No, I, I love this poem. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why after, uh, after I, I give it a whirl here. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell you that its sculptor, well those passions red, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed, and on that pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You know, yeah, it just gives me chills every time I read it because it's funny because, you know, who heard of Ozymandias before reading this poem? <laughs> right? So the poem itself stands as a monument to memory. Um, 
this is just kind of a classic example or a very well-written example of you can't take it with you. You know, everything decays. You know, we talked before we started, you know, this podcast about how everything tends towards a state of entropy. Things fall apart to you know, paraphrase, you know, another famous poem. This is it. This is the way the world is. You too shall be forgotten. Everything that you thought was awesome, just going to be dust in a you know a thousand years from now. Nobody's going to remember. Nobody's going to care. And they just look at these things you know, as like archaeological curiosities poking up into the present from the past. And uh, you know, to me and a lot of friends of mine who are archaeologists, you know, that's really interesting how the past presents itself in the present and how how do we interpret that. So yeah, and this is also a good kind of memento mori of scholarship, right? You know, you mentioned my Archeo Gaming book, which came out, I started writing it in 2016. It came out in 2018. I've already changed my mind on a lot of stuff that's in that text. And, you know, I am hoping, and one of the reasons for publishing was that people could, could change it. I publish my work to put it out there because I want people to argue with it or change it or use it to grow or advance whatever. I, I fully understand that what I do is the start of a conversation and not the end of a conversation. So having the statue of Ozymandias here is, is a good reminder that that's what you're doing. Everything that you think is awesome, everything that you do, that it'll be there for a while and it's going to change. And uh, you know that's okay. Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head because that's exactly how I interpret it as well. So also, caveat then, are we are we going to eventually see an updated version of the book? Depends on the publisher. I've let them know that I want to do a second edition, you know, that I'll include one of the criticisms. And I think this is a, a good criticism of the, of the book is that it doesn't deal with environmental labor and impact and it doesn't deal with human labor and impact, game creation, design and use. Those are two major omissions uh, that I want to put back in or put into the text for the first time. I can't explain why I didn't do that. I just didn't think of it until somebody came along and said, you dummy, you know how much electricity that stuff uses? You know, you know what the burden is on crunch for developers? It's all of a piece. So yeah, yeah, I definitely want to add that stuff in. Awesome. Well, I will hopefully be on the lookout and hopefully one day I'll see we have a second edition coming. And order yeah. it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty to do to, to, to update it already. It's, it's good as it is, but, you know, anything good can be better. Yeah, for sure. Everything everything can, can be improved in, in some manner, I think. So the last question I kind of ask every guest, because I just love the diversity of responses, is if you consider our, our modern culture and society today, is there anything that could be considered a modern Ozymandias? You know, what is something that we think is the be-all, end-all, amazing, awesome thing that will last a thousand years now, but, you know, realistically in 2000 years, we'll look back and be like, that wasn't that great. (laughs) Well, I could look at the past administration. Uh, I I really don't like to say his name himself as Ozymandias, you know, being all grandiose and full of pomp and vulgarity. There he is. And I'm so hopeful that well, his monuments are already being taken down. His casinos are already being destroyed. They imploded one in Atlantic City a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it, every time that happens, I'm delighted. But that's just me politicizing and sharing my opinion. But, you know, so I would say that. But, you know, there are other, you know, kind of classic works, you know, especially as we go back as scholars and reevaluate past scholarship, which is, I think, the duty of any scholar. Any contemporary scholar needs to look at the past literature and see if it holds up, see, you know, how the arguments changed, how has the evidence changed when we're talking, you know, about the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or being more inclusive, you know, in in, in scholarship and in the academy, you know, all of this has a bearing on how we evaluate that past scholarship. And we're realizing that it needs to be updated, that they're, you know, super colonialist attitudes, misogynist attitudes, racial attitudes, that, we're a product of the time, but and, and should be acknowledged. But moving forward, we could do better. These monuments to scholarship, you know, whether it's you know Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman Empire or 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 other things, you know, by by individuals who have you know this this you know checkered past or awful past now. Yeah, we need to go back and revisit that stuff. And it's not a cancellation or anything by any stretch. It's basically what evidence do we have now and how can we improve our arguments, you know, moving ahead, Titanic works have to be reconsidered, reevaluated and challenged. And I think that's, that's up to us and they're not going anywhere. They'll still be there. 
they'll still be the the parts of the statue in the sand you know so it's not like we're wiping them from the face of the earth we're not there but they're there and they are there to be engaged with by modern scholarship a great answer yeah i (laughs) have very similar feelings uh but you know i won't torture my listeners with my uh, (laughs) opinions again for the you know ten thousandth. yeah so i just want to thank you again for joining me um you know it's been such a a pleasure to to be able to talk and and soak up some of your wisdom and experience (laughs) wisdom and quotes you're 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 too kind no i appreciate this uh i've told you things i haven't told anybody else so uh now the listeners will (laughs) will all benefit from that well, I'm very honored then. Yeah. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Ancient Office Hours. Join history nerd and classicist extraordinaire Lexi Henning as she chats with thought leaders in academia and the entertainment industry about how they got into their field, their current research projects, and how the ancient world inspires them. Together, they strive to connect modern societies to ancient worlds, examine the practicality of going into ancient studies, and talk about why it's important to fund the humanities. Their goal is to increase access to information about the ancient world and the people who are influenced by it today. Visit their website at www.theozymandiasproject.com. Listen to the Ancient Office Hours podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher and follow them on their social media. Next week, we're going to get back to the Louisiana Bayou and see just how close Franklin Delano Roosevelt came to being a one-term president. Stay tuned for The Most Dangerous Man in America, Part 1.